Mike asked if I would step in for him this morning and teach. Uh, he and the family are at Parkland today getting sent off to come here to work full-time, as Brandon said, and so that's a great thing for us. We're happy. Um, I am Michael Sylvie, and I do some of the teaching in our youth ministry here at A.B. Chapel, as well as our children's, uh, children's church on Sunday mornings. Mike finished the teaching last week in Exodus 14, and so we'll just pick up where he left off. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, or if you don't and you want to grab a Bible from the back of one of the chairs, we'll be in Exodus Exodus 15. The title of this message is The Song of Moses. We're going to actually look at a worship song that Moses wrote, and he and the children of Israel sing this worship song in celebration. This message had a subtitle. It would be, Worship God in your Myra and your Elam. And maybe that'll make sense by the end of the lesson. So if you're with me in Exodus chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. If you would like, you can read along with me. Then, I think this is a good place to stop there and let's discuss what we've read so far. So this chapter starts off with the word then. And if you were here last week, you're caught up. If you were not here last week, then this word could be confusing then. Because what's going to happen is, if you read the rest of this verse, it says, then Moses and the people sang a worship song to God about an event that happened in Exodus 14, and moving backwards from that. And so I thought it may be a good idea just to give us a quick recap on the events that have transpired up until this moment. So in Exodus chapter 1, here's a few verses that just give us an idea. Um, There arose a new king in Egypt. The Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict burdens, The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. So that's how this book of Exodus opens up. At this time, Moses isn't born yet. We know another part of what happened with this Pharaoh is he declares the Israelites are getting uh, too uh, strong and powerful in how many Israelites there are. And so he puts out a proclamation that all male babies must be... uh, annihilated. And so uh, Moses is is born, and he's hidden, and then the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, and that's how Moses makes it out alive. Exodus chapter 2, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. Their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So I do want to take a second in this chapter 2 for us to focus on what it was like for the Israelites. They were in bondage, and they were crying out to God, and they were groaning. And then, uh, as you read verse 24 and 25, you see that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob hears the cry of his people. And then we have several chapters of the ten plagues. And if you were with us, that is very interesting stuff, um, as long as you're not living through it. 
And uh, God uses Moses to talk to Pharaoh uh, and let him know you're going to experience these plagues if you don't let my people go. And each time there's a plague and Pharaoh and the people are like, oh no, we don't want this anymore. The people can go, but then they change their mind and his heart is hardened. And so we go through all the plagues until the last plague, plague number 10, um, the firstborn lose their lives in the houses that uh, do not put the blood of the lamb over the uh, doorpost. That brings us to Exodus 14. After that, then Pharaoh finally says, you can go. And the Israelites pack up and they go. And then after they're uh, gone and they're, or they're leaving, they're gone, then Pharaoh and the people say this, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So Pharaoh makes ready his chariot, takes 600 choice chariots, and all of the chariots of Egypt. Basically, he gets his army and he pursues after um, the Israelites. And then, uh, obviously, and probably just how I would feel, the Israelites are very afraid. The children of Israel again crowd to the Lord, but then they look to Moses, their leader, and say, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you brought us out of Egypt? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die here in the wilderness. Part of the reason I shared with you chapter 2 is just so we could remember what the people were saying and feeling at the time when, when they were in bondage in Egypt. They were crying out to God, they were groaning, and they wanted out of that bondage. So God has gotten them out of that bondage, uh, uh, using Moses as the leader, and then now they're complaining, uh, look what you've done, why have you done this? Because you cried out <laughs> for this to happen. All right, anyway. We may pause at this moment just to maybe take in a life lesson. I'll just make it quick. You can think about it. It may impact your heart, or it, it may just go over your head that this may not be where you are. But in this exact situation, like, The Israelites saw all the plagues that God placed on Egypt. They saw everything that God did to get them out of bondage. And now they're seeing the army of Egypt come at them. And so I just asked the question, or I posed the thought, how often do we forget God's faithfulness in our past because we're focused on the trial before us? So if you're in a trial today or if you have one coming up this week, Just keep in mind how God has been faithful to you up until this moment and and years prior and generations before that. Exodus 14. So this is the scene. uh, And this is kind of neat. So Moses says, Do not be afraid. Stand still. Salvation of the Lord. uh, He will accomplish for you today. And then... Uh, I just wanted to take a second and point this out because this is interesting. If you know the story, God was using a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to, to guide the Israelites. And so in this moment when the army of Egypt is, the Egyptians are bearing down on them, the angel of God moves and goes behind them and the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. And so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. So you see in that moment, God goes behind the Israelites to protect them and gets between them and the camp of the Egyptians. And then before them, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and we know what happens. Parts of the waters, the Israelites go on dry ground. 
And I just wanted to take a moment to point this out because uh, one of the, the lesson series we're going through in uh, youth right now, and uh, if any uh, middle school or teenage students want to come to that, we do that on Sunday nights from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock here at the church. The series we're going through right now is called Known, Understanding Our Identity in Christ. And one of the scriptures we looked at in this past lesson really tied in to the lesson that Mike is teaching in Exodus. Psalm 139, 1-5 says, You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. And then verse 5, this is kind of cool when you think about what happened in, uh, with the Israelites. It says, You hem me in from behind and before me, and you lay your hand upon me. And so just like God did that for the Israelites in that moment, in that trial, he does that for us in our lives as well. And then Exodus 14.30, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And we know that the waters came back down, crashed over the army of Egypt, and now we're back to where we left off then. So if you want to pick up with the word then, we'll continue verse 1 and 2. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. And so the next few verses, we're going to read through this. This is a worship song written by Moses and sang by Moses and the children of Israel in celebration. So um, this is the party after the, the uh, salvation of the people. This is actually the first song that we come to in the scripture, so that's kind of cool. Uh, we're getting an experience, the first song together. And if you think, could you actually sing this song? From my past, I have... Um, heard this song saying, I don't know if you know it or have heard it. If you do know it, feel free to sing with me real quick. Um, but we're just going to, I'm going to sing this uh, song that someone else wrote and added the m- music to the words. It goes something like this I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. And then verse 1 again. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. Then verse 2. The Lord is God, and I will praise him. The Lord is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is God, and I will praise him. The Lord is God, and I will exalt him. Couple couple thoughts about these two verses. One is that God is the focus of praise in the song written by Moses. Moses played a big part in this um, experience, yet in the song that he writes, he doesn't ever mention his own name. And I think that's very cool and speaks to the worship of God because God should be the focus of our worship. And Moses in this, as great of a leader in the things that he did, he was just a tool used by God, and God did the the saving and rescuing of the people. So let's just talk for a little bit about worship. Um, Because as I think about 
all the different places that I go in my life where there are a gathering of people. If you haven't been raised in church, if you have been raised in church, this makes complete sense to you. But if you have not been raised in church, it may seem odd that we all show up together at the same time, at the same place, and then we start singing together. Like, try to find a place where that happens in, in any other place in your life. There, there may be a, a place or two. Like, if you go to a music concert, um, maybe everybody sings together. But really, the only thing I could kind of think of, um, I, know, I don't know if you guys are keeping up, but uh, the Cardinals are doing something pretty cool right now, right? 15, yeah. So, and it was the Cubbies, yes, Awesome. And uh, so I think about like when we go, if we go to Bush Stadium and watch a game and everybody gets together, we start, we start that ceremony off with the singing of the national anthem. And then when we get to the seventh inning, uh, we sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game together. So that's kind of cool. I guess that's kind of like a big worship session, right? Uh, but when we come together and we sing songs, we're doing it for a purpose. We're doing it for a reason. And so I just wanted to take just a second because we're reading a worship song this morning to talk about some of the ideas behind us coming together and singing in worship. So uh, one thing is that we worship in song, and that comes straight from the Scripture. There's a reason why we do that. In Psalms 100, it says this, and, and I'll just say, in Psalm 100, it doesn't say you have to sing pretty. It just says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord uh, in singing. And so when we come together, you may not be the best singer, but you may want to give that offering to God and sing a song about him and to him. So Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture, enter into the gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth for all generations. And so we see in the scripture the focus is on God and the worship of God. And they say uh, in that psalm, in that verse, that we can do that with singing. Another thing about worship is that it should be more than a song. If you want to turn to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, this is a scripture talking about um, our lives and how it should be a sacrifice unto God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that it is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, worship is more than a song. It is our living sacrifice to God. Another thing about worship is we worship with all of our hearts. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And then in Luke, it quotes Jesus to also add all of your strength, just to give this idea that when we worship God, we're worshiping him with everything that we have. And if we're just here singing a song and not singing it in worship to, to God, then we're just singing a song. But that if we're singing with our full hearts, with all of our hearts, then our worship, God hears that worship and loves it. 
We should be constant worshipers. There's a place in the Bible that says pray without ceasing. There's also uh, this imagery or this idea that we should at all times be worshiping God in our lives. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10.31, it's going to say, Therefore, whether you're just eating or drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so in everything we do, whatever it may be, it may be a mundane Monday, but we're doing it in worship to God. Or we may be going through a trial, and we're doing it to the glory of God. Last thing I want to say about worship is not based on our circumstances or how we feel, but we should base it on who he is and what he has done. Our worship should not be based on how we feel or the circumstances that we're going through, but based on who he is. Some people, when you think about people singing in a church, they may think that the people out in the seats are the audience, and the people up on stage with holding the instruments are the ones uh, doing the worship, and then God's just there to help. But that's not the setup when it comes, when it comes time to worship. We as a body are the ones doing the worshiping. God is our audience, and the people up on stage, we don't really need them. (laughs) But we appreciate them because they help us in worship, right? I was joking about the musicians. I love musicians. And then a quick note. I said who he is, talking about God, but I also added what he's done. And if you think, well, God's not doing much for me right now, I just want to to remind you the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, right? Right? And that he's already done that. He said it's finished. He did that for you, to save you. And I just want to look in this one verse. I just want to quote this part out of this verse because this is just so powerful if you really think about what Jesus did for you. In Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, Jesus utters something. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in all of Jesus' brokenness and all the agony that he went through, one of the greatest things that he had to endure and go through was that break in that communion with his heavenly Father. Like it was the ultimate, it was the ultimate sacrifice that he had to go through. And he did that for us. So our worship, when we come to church and it's time to sing, if we're having a bad day or if we don't really feel like singing, I mean, you can choose not to. But God still is who he is, and he still did what he's already done. And so we should worship him because of who he is and what he's done. All right, let's go back to Exodus 15, verse 3 and 4. And we're just going to kind of look through this worship song, verse by verse, kind of talk a little bit about it as we go. I won't spend a whole lot of time breaking down each verse or each word. Uh, Verse 3. It says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. Verse 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. You know, sometimes we need God to be a God of peace, a God of healing. But sometimes we need him to be a God of war. Aren't you glad that God fights for us? God fights for us. Verse 5. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. I've just got to slip into 
I've uh, went into education as a career, and I was a junior high English teacher. So sorry about that for you right now. But we're going to talk about <laughs> how Moses uses simile in this verse. And maybe there's some students in here that can learn something and use it on a test. So Moses says that the, the enemy sank to the bottom like a stone. And we see Moses use uh, simile in some of this poem that he's written or this song. We also see it in verse 8 where he says um, that uh, the flood stood upright like a heap, like a heap. So he's comparing two things, and he's saying this thing is like this other thing. And then in verse 10, it says the enemy, or, uh, they, sank like lead. And so they're comparing the enemy to lead. So just some um, poetic use of the language and using simile in these places. Exodus 15, verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemies in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. And we see here it talking about God's right hand. I got to discuss this a little bit in my last lesson that I taught to the church. But anytime it talks about the right hand in the Bible, it's just the symbol of strength, of power, um, and Nothing against left-handed people. I have left-handed people in my family. They're awesome people. They're amazing people. There's just the majority of the population is right-handed, and so that symbolism got placed uh, on that. And so when they talk about the right hand of God, they're just talking about the strength or the power. Exodus 15:8, And here we see Moses uses uh, imagery. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright like a heap. The depth congealed in the heart of the sea. And this, so this verse starts off out by saying the Lord with the blast of his nostrils. And I think this is referring to, if you go back to Exodus 14, 21, it tells how he parted the waters. It says Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord, Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. Other than the imagery here, I just want to point out one quick thing that I see sometimes in our world. Um, I see miracles of God in ways that, that God puts his hand on our lives. And sometimes people who um, don't agree with that statement will use nature or science to kind of explain that away. And they say, here's scientifically how that happened. Or here in nature is how that happened. And a lot of times, or most of the time, I don't dispute what they're saying but I would say, just as a note, sometimes people contribute acts of God to nature, but I believe God created nature. And therefore, if he chooses to use nature to do his acts, then he can very well do that. He is God, and he's the one that created that. And so we see here that God parted the waters by using a wind. Um, and so anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. Exodus 15, 9, and 10. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So the enemy of God's people are going to pursue them and destroy them is what this verse 9 says. And then verse 10, but God, right? Verse 10 you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead, 
in the mighty waters. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious and holy, fearful in praises, doing wonders? This goes back to our idea that our worship should be focused on God. He is the one and only God, the one true God. In a couple other places in the Bible, Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old. This is God speaking. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And then in Hosea, this is at a time where the children of Israel, after being saved and coming through all of this we're reading and learning about now, rebel against God and start worshiping other gods, small g. And God says, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, referring back to what we're learning right now. And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. So our, wor- our worship should be focused on the one true God. Exodus fifteen twelve and 13. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Let's just pause for a second and read that verse again quietly to ourselves and realize this is in a worship song. You stretched out your hand, your right hand, and the earth swallowed my enemy. Some may not understand how this could be in a worship song, but I would say until they are delivered by God from the hand of their enemy. Then this makes sense that we're putting this in a worship song. Verse 13, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have received. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Next verse, 14, 15, and 16. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Exodus 14 through 16, it says, Those who hear about this event will fear the Lord. And I just want to take you for a second to another place in the Bible because this is interesting i got to incorporate like three different Bible stories in this one thing to make a point. But we've learned and taught and, and uh, experienced together how God brought them out of Egypt and saved them uh, using the Red Sea. Not too long after this, Moses is going to send out 12 spies to go look at the land that God has promised them. And he says, come back, give us a report. And if you know this story, when the 12 spies come back, Two of them say, this is the land God promised us. Let's go take it. Those two people are Joshua and Caleb. Spoiler alert in case you're waiting for Mike to teach this (laughs) later. But uh, they're saying, we can do this. God said this is our land. He's promised it to us for generations. Let's go take it. Ten of the twelve spies say, you won't believe what we saw. Those people are giants. We are like grasshoppers to them. And so because of that, the people of Israel decide we shouldn't go take this land. And from that one meeting, that one business meeting, they find themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And the scripture tells us that all the ten spies that didn't trust in God and gave that report, they actually pass away. They don't even get to see the promised land. But that Joshua and Caleb are the only two of that committee that get to actually see the promised land when it comes time to take them. And at this time, Joshua is now in command. It's been 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and he sends two spies into Jericho. You may recognize that name and know the story of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. He sends the two spies in. Well, they're looking for those two Israelites, and so they run into this lady. Her name is Rahab, and um, we won't talk about her profession. I'll leave that for Mike. But Rahab, she helps these two, and she hides them. She actually lies and hides them so that they can stay safe because she knows these are people of God. And if you will, just turn in your scripture to to Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. And I just want to read verse 9, 10, and 11. This is Rahab talking to these two spies. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. She's talking about the giants that they were so fearful of in this land. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when they came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. In verse 11, she wraps it up. She says, As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they feared man and didn't trust God. And then when they finally get to the place and talk to the people, come to find out they were terrified. They were scared to death of these people. What wasted years. It is so important for us to trust and know God and know who he is. All right. Verse 17, 18, and 19. And this is just the, end, the ending of the song. It's a celebration. And then the last verse is repetition. Anytime you see repetition in the Bible, they're using that because it's emphasis. It's important. 17, 18, and 19. So the men said to her, nope, I'm still in Joshua. Let's go back to Exodus 15. Sorry. All right. 17. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place of the Lord, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hand have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And then repetition. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And they're just singing this worship song in a celebration. And now in the next verses, 20 and 21, we see Miriam, who is the sister of Aaron. And we know Aaron was Moses' brother, and therefore they're siblings. And so Miriam and the women are going to dance in worship. Verse 20 and 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her, and the timbrels in with dances. And Miriam answered them, "'Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously.'" The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. 
And so just real quick, a few thoughts on this. Miriam and the women danced in worship. And I believe that sometimes body posture is a part of our worship. A few examples from the Bible. In 2 Samuel 6, they bring the Ark of the Covenant back to God's people. And David is so overjoyed that he dances before the Lord. 1 Timothy 2, we see it tells us to pray while lifting holy hands. And then Psalm 95, it talks to us about our posture while we worship, bow down and kneel in worship. These are just a few places where we see that body posture is just an extension of our worship to God. 22 through 24, we come out of the song, we come out of the celebration, and now they're moving on. Scripture uh, reads as such, 22 through 24. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. So now they're in the wilderness. And they go three days in the wilderness and find no water. And now uh, they come to a place called Marah. They could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Therefore the name of this place is called Marah, which means bitter. And the people complain against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So we see this people that are delivered by the hand of God, and they're celebrating this deliverance. And then not too long after that, they're complaining again. And I just thought, I don't know, this might be fun. I was on a car trip with one of my sons, and we were listening to a a Christian comedian by the name of Tim Hawkins. And he was uh, sharing that he believes that music is powerful. And, and he said, what if, what if we used music to talk to our kids? Because sometimes they don't want to listen. Yeah? And I kind of place this, I think about this with Moses. Like, it's kind of like Moses is on this, um, this road trip or this family vacation, and they're just driving and driving and driving, and the people are in the back seat just complaining. And I was like, Moses wrote this awesome worship song and uh, sang it to the Lord. I wonder if Moses could have like used music to really talk to the people and, and to talk some sense into them. And then I kind of think, you know, as parents sometimes, we may need to do that as well. And so I kind of got this, you know, I got this stuff, I got this idea from Tim Hawkins, uh, this comedian. And so let's just, uh, let's imagine that we're on a road trip a vacation, our, fam- our kids are in the back screaming and yelling and fighting, and what might come of this? You better quit all that complaining, don't want to hear another sound. If I hear any more whining, I'm going to turn this car around. You got a little television, and you've had enough to eat. If you don't change your disposition, I'm going to leave you in the street. So I'm waiting for your attitude to change. I say I'm waiting for your attitude to change. You say that I ain't fair. Guess that would matter if I cared So I keep on waiting For your attitude to change So here in this church we like to keep up with the times, right? And I don't know if you know this But on Friday, something happened The new 
iPhone 13 came out. It is now for sale. And so you may have teenagers in your house. You may have a spouse in your house. You may want to use this song. not gonna buy you an iPhone cause you ask for it like you need one you don't I'm not gonna buy you an iPhone you're insane if you think I'll pay for it so be on your way I'm not gonna listen to a word you say you're wasting all your time here's a dime if you can find a payphone but no iPhone today And then, let me just ask you, how many of you go, on, go to church on Sunday mornings, occasionally or all the time? Anybody? Show of hands. Show of hands. All right, this is weird that I got half the, half the congregation raising their hand. <laughs> the other half are obviously caught in a lie. Um, but if you're a part of a family, sometimes like getting to church, is it the most difficult thing that you've ever experienced? And so maybe, just maybe... Um, on your way to church on a Sunday morning, maybe this song may speak to you. Maybe it can speak to your kids. Maybe it can speak to your spouse. I don't know what problems you're going through, but we're all in this together. Hear the car out in the drive See us all waiting outside We wait for you Headed to church this Sunday morn I raise my voice, I honk my horn And we'll leave Without you, leaving without you, leaving without you, we will leave with or without you. Let's go, go. Amen, right? Amen. All right. Let's finish this out. Exodus 15, verse 25 and 26. That was fun. So Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord shows him a tree. Remember, the people have gone three days without drinking water. They find water, but now it's bitter. And so God shows him a tree. Let's just pause just for a second and think about the obvious. Moses, sorry, I hit the button too quickly. The first first comment. Moses cries out to God and God provides by showing him a tree. Thank you, God, for the cross. 
And then, when he cast the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And I just want to bring up this point again. Again, we see another example where God uses his own nature to provide for his people. Verse 26, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I am brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I want to take just a second to focus on this verse and just say my opinion about this. I believe that there are um, organizations and Christians who misinterpret this verse to say that if you have strong enough faith, all of your diseases will be healed and you will not have to go through this. I believe this verse 26 is speaking specifically to the Israelites and in reference to the diseases of the plague of Egypt. And I can understand how a family who um, may have disease in someone that they love may pray for that healing, and I believe 100% that God can heal. But I also believe that sometimes because of circumstances he may understand and we may never understand until we meet him, that he chooses not to do that. And I do not believe that it's because faithful Christians don't have enough faith. Right? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And so if someone in your family or someone you love or someone you know is going through this and you're saying if you have enough faith, they can be healed, and there's truth in that, but then if they're not healed, then now that person may have to not only deal with the loss, but now they feel like they didn't have enough faith. And, and that's going to mess with their relationship possibly with other Christians. It's going to mess with their relationship with God. And so I just caution you that sometimes the Scripture is powerful, like the Bible Scripture is powerful, and this verse is powerful. And I do believe that God has the power to heal. But sometimes I think we take Scripture and we use it in ways that we want to use it or that we believe that it's right, and we may not be hitting the mark exactly. And so I just caution you on that. In my strong opinion, this verse 26 is God speaking directly to these people, his children of Israel, and saying, if you do these things, then I will not put the plagues that you just witnessed of Egypt on you. And in, during the plagues, Micah said time and again as we went through that, they were protected from those plagues because of, uh, because of their faith in God. All right. Last verse, 1527. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. And so after this journey through the wilderness and no water for three days, and then they get to to Mara, and they find water, but it's bitter and they can't drink it. And so then God performs a miracle or uses nature so that they can drink the water. And then he leads them to Elam. And it's described in the scripture as having... 12 wells and 70 palm trees. It was like an oasis in the wilderness. And so I say to you, be thankful for your times in your life when God leads you to Elam. 
but also, and this was the subtitle of this whole lesson, worship God in your Myra and in your Elam. Guys, thank you so much for your attention. Um, I'm going to ask the music team to come up, and we'll do a song in worship. And let's, let's pray, God. I just thank you so much for the scripture and what you did for your people, but that we can apply these things to our lives, and we know that you're our great rescuer, that you're our salvation, and that we um, can spend our entire lives every day in worship to you because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.